Raise your hand if you've seen uh, the movie Christmas Vacation with Chevy Chase. <laughs> Amy's favorite. <laughs> so, so for those of you who did raise your hand, uh, you're familiar with Cousin Eddie. Cousin Eddie... Uh, for those of you who don't know who Cousin Eddie is, let me explain who Cousin Eddie is. Cousin Eddie is, is one of those guys that uh, makes, gets on everybody's nerves, especially the main character, Chevy Chase, Clark. He gets on Clark's nerves all the time. Uh, Cousin Eddie is one of those guys uh, that is obnoxious. He's embarrassing. If you walk into your room and Cousin Eddie's the only one in the room, you turn and walk out of the room because you don't want to get stuck in the room with Cousin Eddie. He's, he, he doesn't know the normal social cues that the rest of the world is familiar with. He's oblivious to them. This is Cousin Eddie. And we, we watch the Christmas, sto- or, uh, the Christmas vacation and we laugh. We laugh at Cousin Eddie. Why? Because he's real, isn't he? He is real. Now, I'm not saying Cousin Eddie himself is real, but the character is real. Because here is the reality. Oh, it would help if I turn on my clicker to go to the slide. Uh, Here's the reality. We all have that family member, don't we? We all have a Cousin Eddie in our family. We all do. Uh, Maybe at Christmas time, you know, Cousin Jill's going to come over, drink a lot of eggnog and uh, alcohol, and say some embarrassing things, some things that make you feel uncomfortable. Maybe you know that uh, Aunt Sally is going to eat her uh, Christmas dinner and then she's going to go park herself in front of the TV uh, in the middle of the living room where everyone's at and she's going to fall asleep. But before she falls asleep, she takes out her teeth and puts them right on the coffee table. Maybe you know that your brother is coming with his high-maintenance wife who thinks that she's better than everybody and that she knows everything about everything. We all have those types of family members, don't we? And that's what makes Cousin Eddie so funny, because we can relate. We know what it's like for a family member to be obnoxious and say something embarrassing, for us to uh, roll our eyes, shake our heads, and be uncomfortable and leave the room. We know what that's like, and that's what Cousin Eddie makes you feel. We all have that family member, and so does Jesus. We're in our series, A Thrill of Hope. And as I said at the beginning of the service, we are uh, contrasting what is thrilling about Christmas to the world and what is thrilling about Christmas for the Christian. Last week, uh, if you remember, we looked at Adam and Eve. They were the ones that received the first Christmas promise. They had sinned. They deserved to be eternally separated from God, and yet God said, I'm going to send a Savior to save you. And their first Christmas promise was a thrill of hope. Today, we're looking at a section of Scripture that we generally uh, skim at best or usually just skip completely over. It's Jesus' genealogy. That's right, we're going to look at a bunch of names in Jesus' family line. Sounds exciting, doesn't it? (laughs) But, why look at it? Well, what do we need to remember? The Bible says that all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, correcting, and training and rebuking in righteousness. 
so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So what does that mean? Even this genealogy, even this list of names is useful to you and me. And today as we look at it, uh, we're going to find tucked inside all these names is hope. So, let's look at God's Word. Uh, It's not going to be up on the screen today. Uh, It's just printed in your worship folder. It's on page 6. And in fact, I'm not even going to read it all because otherwise it's just going to sound like this. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, and go on for 17 verses. Uh, Instead, I'm going to... It's printed in the folder for you. I'm going to give you some facts about this genealogy and then we're going to look at some of the names in here, okay? The genealogy of Jesus. Uh, Matthew sets it up in three different sections. Uh, It's hard to tell in the worship folder. If you had your Bible open, um, it'd be easier to see. The first section is from verse 1 through verse 6. This is a time period known as a patriarchal time period. Uh, the, The patriarchs of the family. Uh, This time period is from 2000 to 1000 B.C. And it goes from Abraham to King David. The second section uh, goes from verse 6, about David was a father of Solomon, through verse verse 11. And that's known as uh, the period of the kings. This is when the nation of Israel was a kingdom, uh, and, and these are a list of kings from then. And that goes from 1,000 to about 580 B.C. The last, the, the remaining verses go from 580 B.C. through 0 B.C. when Jesus is born. This is known as the post-exilic time period. Um, in other words, the post-exile. After they were taken over by Babylon, de- uh, deported, and brought back. Uh, That's this time period. And tucked into this genealogy, we see a bunch of those family members. So if you're following along, the first one right off the bat is Abraham. We think Abraham uh, is generally a faithful guy, right? Uh, He's the patriarch. God calls him at the age of 75. He says, Abraham, I'm going to make you into a great nation. And Abraham says, how, Lord? I'm 75 years old. My wife is barren. She has no kids. She can't have kids. Uh, How are you going to do this? God says, trust me. Years go by. Years go by. No kid, no kid. Finally, Abraham says, I'm going to take matters into my own hands. He doesn't trust God, and he sleeps with another woman and has a child through her. Commits adultery. You jump down to verse 3. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Tamar was Judah's daughter-in-law. Judah, uh, Tamar was originally married to Judah's first son. His son died. And as custom and was the law at the time, uh, if a son died, the next one in line would marry his widow. So Judah's second son married Tamar. He died. And Judah said, okay, I'm done giving my sons to this lady. She's not killing them, but she's not good luck. Uh, So they keep dying. So I'm not giving you my third son. And, And Tamar says this isn't right. And so what does she do? She disguises herself and dresses as a prostitute. And Judah, who's out on the streets one night, hires a prostitute. And he hires his daughter in law, sleeps with her, has two kids. This is in the Savior's line. 
Jump down a few more verses. Rahab, verse 5. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Rahab was from the city of Jericho. If you're familiar with the story, that's when the walls of Jericho came down. Before the walls of Jericho came down, the Israelites sent spies into the city. And Rahab, who was from Jericho, housed them. And she said, look, when you come in and take the city, spare my life. And they said, because you showed us kindness, we will. Rahab's job? Prostitute. After the walls came down, they spared Rahab. She married into the Savior's line. One verse below that, we have Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. There's a book in the Old Testament called Ruth. Ruth was a Moabite, a foreigner, married into the Savior's line. But tucked in the dark secrets of Ruth's ancestors is some dark and crazy things. Ruth came from the line of Lot. If you remember, Abraham and Sarah had a nephew named Lot that they took with them. And at one point, Abraham said, look, we're too big. Lot, you go this way and I'll go this way. And Lot said, I'm going to go to Sodom and Gomorrah. And so Lot was living in Sodom and Gomorrah. What happened to Sodom and Gomorrah? They were an extremely sinful city, and God rained down fire and destroyed the city. The only ones to survive? Lot and his daughters. His two daughters. And it wasn't like today, where you know if Liberty Hill burned down, we could go to Georgetown, no problem, right? They're out in the middle of nowhere. They're up in the mountains, no close village nearby, no, no town. And they're up there, and Lot's daughters start getting baby fever. And so they get their father, Lot, extremely drunk, and they sleep with their own father to have children. Incest. This is the line that Ruth is from, who then marries into the Savior's line. We jump down one more verse, verse 6, King David. The Bible describes King David as a man after the Lord's own heart. And yet what did King David do? He committed adultery with Bathsheba, slept with another man's wife, and then she became pregnant, and so he killed her husband to cover up his tracks. And then the last one, verse 10. Manasseh. He was one of the kings of Israel. He was an extremely wicked king. He served any and worshipped any and uh, any god he possibly could other than the true God. And one of the gods he, he served in worship was a god named Kamesh. Kamesh was an idol that was like sitting down with his arms extended. And how you worshipped him, you put your child on his arms and set a fire underneath it and let your child burn up. That was Manasseh. And yet the amazing part is we're told that later on in his life, the Holy Spirit convicted him, he repented, and became a Christian. Jesus' family line is filled with these types of people. These embarrassing types of individuals that if you're sitting around Christmas dinner, you don't want to bring up, you don't want to talk about. In some ways, these are worse than a cousin Eddie, aren't they? And the amazing thing is, God included them in His family line. First of all, God could have had anyone He wanted to be in His family line. Second of all, God wrote Scripture, right? 
And he could have excluded anyone that he wanted. And yet he didn't. But it would have been culturally acceptable. Jewish people at this time, when they were recording their family lines and their genealogy, uh, if they were embarrassed about someone uh, in their family tree or in their family line, they just kicked them out. They just didn't record their name down. And that was culturally acceptable. And yet here God doesn't. Here God lays it all out. Here are the sinners in my family. Is it shocking to you? Is it disturbing to think that the Savior has these types of sinners in His family tree? Are you sitting there thinking, where's the hope in this? How does this fit in with a thrill of hope? Well, there's something that we need to remember when we're looking at Jesus' family line, and that is Jesus has a lot of these family members, and I am that family member. Jesus has a lot of those family members, and I am that family member. You see, our sin is just as disturbing. Our sin is just as shocking as what we just looked at. The only difference, ours isn't recorded in the Bible for everyone in the world to see. But if it was, people would be shocked and disturbed wouldn't they? And the tragedy of it all is that we don't see it. The tragedy is that our sin has blinded us to just how sinful we actually are. And in fact, we look around and we think we're a shoo-in for God's family. We look around and we compare ourselves. We look at this list and we say, well, I'm not nearly as bad. I should be in God's family if these people are in God's family. It's kind of like going back to uh, PE class in high school and in grade school, right? You have the two, two captains, and you're going to split up the team for a dodgeball game. And as you're standing there, you're looking around at your classmates, and you're thinking, man, compared to these jokers, uh, I'm going to be one of the first ones picked here. This is great. You see, a lot of times, that's how we, we think God's family is. We're so blinded to our own sin that we look around and we say, I deserve to be in. But what does God's Word say about us? Psalm 51 verse 5 says, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. At the very moment of conception, God's Word says, we are a sinful human being. We are sinners. At the very moment of conception. And what has our sin done? Isaiah 59 verse 2 says, But your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden His face from you, so that He will not hear. Our sin is so disturbing, our sin is so shocking to God, that He turns His face from us. That He doesn't want to even look at us. Now, yes, our sins might not be as grievous as incest, actual murder, uh, adultery. We might not have committed those sins physically. But what have we done? We've all lusted for someone who's not our spouse. We've all coveted something that's not ours. We've all hated in our heart or held bitterness 
and refuse to forgive. And in God's sight, a sin is a sin. And what does He do with sin? He turns His face from it. Go back to the the dodgeball team in high school. You're standing there and things aren't playing out as you thought it was going to. You're not one of the first ones picked. And as more and more people get picked, you start looking around and you start thinking, well, at least, uh, at least don't let me be the last one picked. If I'm not the last one picked, everything is okay. Right? And in God's family, He wouldn't even pick us. He wouldn't even waste the last spot on us with sin. He would turn His face from us. And we often don't think about that, do we? That's why Christmas isn't as exciting as it should be. That's why we aren't as excited about the baby Jesus being born. Uh, Yes, we get excited about Christmas, but we get excited about all the, the other things, don't we? But we don't get so excited about the fact that Jesus is born because we don't realize just how sinful we are. We think we're shoo-ins. The arrogance is so deeply rooted in us that we think we're shoo-in. And then when God's Word finally convicts our heart and we realize that God wants to hide His face from us, we go on the other end, right? Our arrogance kicks in on the other side and says, I'm too sinful, God can't forgive me. My sins are too great. That's arrogance too. And yet, what do we need to keep in mind? What do we need to remember? That Jesus loves those family members and me. Let's look at how Jesus' genealogy finishes up. We are told in verse 16, And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the, uh, uh, the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Thus there were 14 generations in all, from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. How does the genealogy end? The Messiah is born. The Messiah is the the Hebrew word which means anointed. Christ is the Greek word which means anointed. So they mean the same thing. Uh, And the Messiah... Jesus, the anointed one, was born into the world as a human being. True God, born into the world as a human. And not just born as a human, born from a line of sinners just like this. Isn't that amazing? As I look at Jesus' family line, what do I see? I don't see a list of squeaky clean, perfect individuals. I see sinners. Sinners like me. You see, here's what we really learn from Jesus' family line. Jesus came from sinners for sinners. And that includes me. Isn't that thrilling? Jesus wasn't embarrassed by His own family. And He's not embarrassed by us. Why? Not because we deserve to be part of God's family. Not because we're so good and, and, and perfect on our own. No. Because the Anointed One, Jesus Himself, was born into the world. 
And he shed his blood to purify us from all sin. He's washed us clean. He's made us clean, and now we are part of God's family. He he, he doesn't just see people who are sinners. He He sees people who are after the Lord's own heart. And what does He call those people? God's Word tells us He calls us His brothers and sisters. We are in the family. Imagine Jesus' genealogy went on. So it didn't just go up to Jesus, but then after Jesus, there's a long list of people's names. Uh, What names would you see in there? Pastors and teachers. Maybe the pastor you grew up with. Your mom, your dad. Great-grandma who was so sweet. Uh, Grandpa who was so strong in his faith. And then you'd see your name because you have been adopted into God's family through the Messiah, the Anointed One. Christmas is thrilling, isn't it? Christmas is thrilling. It's exciting because we have been made part of God's family because the Anointed One shed His blood for us. He was born to save us from our sins, and that's what He did. And so what does that mean? That means that the murderers, the adulterers, are eating with the kings and the queens at the Feast of the Lamb. That means that the the thieves and the rule keepers, they're eating together. Because here's the amazing part. Every single person we looked at today, every single one, committed just grievous sins. But we're told they died in faith. They have been washed. The Messiah The Anointed One was born to deliver them from their sins and they are now in heaven. And that's true for you and me too. We are part of God's family because we have been washed in the blood of Jesus, the Christ child who was born. It's hurtful to be excluded. When you're not wanted, it hurts a lot. But you have been included. This Christmas, know that that the baby born in Bethlehem, the baby in the manger, was born because He was anointed to deliver you from your sins, to make you part of His family. And part of His family is what you are. And that is thrilling. Amen. Please stand. Let's pray. Dear Messiah, the Anointed One, we thank You for coming into the world to die for us and deliver us from sin, death, and the devil. Help us to always remember that we are part of Your family, just like all these other sinners are. We thank You for that. Amen.